pretty sad, uh, although he has left behind an amazing legacy uh, where he has uh, racked up the biggest number of teaching nominations ever, uh, breaking the 100 mark uh, this year with uh, over 100 teaching nominations from the which I think just really speaks volumes about uh, his skills. All right, on to today's session. The code for today is QZXK, which is worth 33 points in Scrabble, if you are allowed to play. Uh, and the capitals are small, it's going to matter if you're using your phone. Um, I, uh, we want to move on the, uh, the organization today. We have two residents who are going to be presenting their work. Um, hopefully we'll finish a couple minutes early, and then next door are the rest of our residents, or almost all of our residents' posters. We had some poster printer problems and our short one or two posters, sadly, today. Um, and then at lunchtime, we will be having the residents uh, lunch down here with the residents in front of their posters, and we encourage everybody to come back and visit us at lunch uh, and get to talk to the residents about the work that they've done if, uh, if you'd like to do that. Um, so, uh, with no further ado, uh, I will turn over to who's going first, by the way. All right, Arvind's going first, fantastic. Uh, so, Arvind Tignes is born and raised in Columbus, Ohio. He went to college at the, the Ohio State University <laughs> and majored in biology and computer science. He attended medical school at Rice State uh, and before coming to Dartmouth, he traveled to residency in medicine. And then this summer, he's going to be doing home critical care at Washington Hospital Center in Washington, D.C. All right, so thanks everyone for coming today. Um, so I'm going to start with kind of a, a brief overview of uh, the project we conducted. So our, our project focused on inpatients at our Veterans Affairs Medical Center in White River Junction. Um, we sought to increase attempts to quit or reduce tobacco use among this population utilizing a shared medical appointment, which I'll talk more about later. Um, we use the model for improvement using an iterative plan do study act framework. So I know I don't have to convince anyone in this audience of the benefits of tobacco cessation or the harms of tobacco use, but I'm going to do so anyway. Um, so tobacco is the leading cause of preventable death in the United States, um, and its use is more prevalent in the veteran population. So about 27% of veterans smoke versus 21% of the general population. On average, smoking results in more than 10 years of life lost. And the benefits of cessation are both large and they're maintained throughout life. So quitting at any age has substantial benefits. If you quit before the age of 55, you gain back about six years of, those, of that life lost, about a two-third reduction in your risk of excess death. And if you quit before the age of 65, you gain back about four of those years. So this, is, this compares pretty favorably to the benefit of other evidence-based therapies. So ACE inhibitors and heart failure have about a 4% absolute risk reduction mortality. Um, statins for primary prevention have a 9% relative risk reduction. And yet we spend a lot of time getting people on the proper evidence-based therapies and thinking about which medications they need to be on and relatively little time focusing on tobacco cessation, which arguably has larger benefits. So these benefits are large, but why should we focus on the problem in the inpatient setting? I think we have a tendency to view this as an outpatient problem or one that's best addressed by primary care providers. But um, the hospital setting actually offers a unique opportunity. So acute illness can lead um, to patients to have an increased motivation to quit. Uh, studies have shown increased quit rates after hospitalization even without any interventions. Hospitalization also allows patients to trial abstinence in the tobacco-free environment of many hospitals. Um, however, uh, at RVA, until recently, patients were able to leave the floor and go outside and smoke in a smoke shack. Um, so that criteria didn't apply. Um, and then additionally, uh, throughout their hospitalization, uh, patients will interact with many different providers. And so if there's a tobacco cessation message or they meet with a tobacco cessation counselor, other providers can reinforce that message and increase their uh, probability of quitting. Uh, additionally, uh, tobacco cessation has been shown to decrease readmission, uh, which decreases the associated morbidity and mortality associated with readmission, um, as well as decreasing costs for hospitals. It's also a metric that's tracked by the Joint Commission, so hospitals are judged upon how well they do in counseling their patients on tobacco cessation. And on the, these metrics, our VA was doing quite poorly before intervention. So we use a different uh, data collection system, something called the EPRP, which I'll talk about a little bit more later. Um, but 
it is comparable to the joint commission measures, and on that measure, about 28.5% of, of our patients um, were offered tobacco cessation counseling, nicotine replacement therapy, or, or referral for outpatient counseling on discharge at the beginning of our project. This is compared to 60% nationally, uh, according to the joint commission numbers. So we had a fairly large problem, and so we set about developing an, an intervention. So there's a Cochrane review um, of inpatient tobacco cessation interventions that identified a few common characteristics of effective interventions. Um, one of these was that it involved systematic identification of patients. It wasn't enough to just uh, blink at your entire population, smokers and non-smokers alike, with one message. I think here at DH, we probably meet our joint commission metric in large part by including a little blurb on everyone's discharge paperwork. Um, but, but that wasn't enough. And that's because the second part of an effective intervention was that it was intensive. It involves more than simply a little note on their discharge paperwork and more than even just bedside counseling, brief bedside counseling by their providers. Um, the best interventions, in fact, involved sustained follow-up after discharge. So patients would either get a follow-up phone call or an in-person meeting. The latest update of that Cochrane review also found that the addition of nicotine replacement therapy uh, to these programs resulted in an increase in the cessation rate. So then I'll talk a little bit about this shared medical appointment. So in the, in the, veteration, in the veteran population, shared medical appointments have been used pretty extensively and are thought to have some unique benefits, perhaps because they recreate um, the unit camaraderie that veterans experience when they're in, in the military. At RVA, Dr. Alex Grossman has actually demonstrated their efficacy for diabetes in the outpatient setting, and they've also been used in the outpatient setting for weight loss and tobacco cessation. Those programs have been shown to decrease A1C and improve blood pressure control. Veterans who use those programs also report improved well-being, increased feelings of empowerment, and improved self-management skills. So as we began developing our intervention, we set out with the following aims. We established a somewhat arbitrary 50% goal for each of them, um, and we hope to achieve these goals over the course of a year. So first, we wanted to increase the number of tobacco users uh, who receive outpatient prescriptions for nicotine replacement therapy or outpatient referrals for counseling to 50%. We collected data on that first aim in two ways. Uh, first, the team conducted manual chart review to assess the proportion of patients who, who received NRT within one month of discharge. This was used as a measure of quit or reduce attempts. Second, we used data from the EPRP, which stands for External Peer Review Program, which is an independent manual patient chart review process that provides medical centers with specific quality of care information. Their performance measures, as I mentioned earlier, are pretty comparable to the Joint Commission metrics. Second, uh, our second aim was to increase the number of hospitalized tobacco users who were offered uh, tobacco cessation counseling while they were hospitalized to 50%. We used EPRP data to assess that aim as well. And then our third aim was to establish these shared medical appointments for tobacco cessation and increase attendance at those appointments to 50%. So as you can tell, these three aims are kind of interrelated. We hope to drive the improvement in the first two aims by driving improvement in the third. And so we tracked the data on that third aim continuously throughout the project with the hope that as we increase the number of patients who attended our appointment, we'd also increase the number who received NRT and the number who received um, counseling on discharge. So I'll talk a little bit more now about how we set up our shared medical appointment. So our shared medical appointment was run by a health psychologist in conjunction with a physician or a pharmacist. Tobacco users were admitted to the hospital, who were admitted to the hospital, were invited by their nurse, their primary treatment team, a, a licensed nursing assistant, or a hospital volunteer who was accompanied by a therapy dog. At that appointment, the health psychologist would meet with one or more tobacco users and use motivational enhancement techniques, group discussion, and education about nicotine replacement therapy to encourage tobacco cessation. At the end of the appointment, if patients requested it, uh, the nicotine replacement therapy would be prescribed by their physician or pharmacist. So we structured further PDSAs around this intervention. So stop for a moment and talk about our QI uh, process at the VA. <laughs> so at our VA, residents on each of the four teaching teams uh, participate in this quality improvement curriculum. As part of that curriculum, each resident completes a month-long quality improvement project, which can be a new project or the continuation of a prior initiative. I've pictured here our weekly QI rounds, um, and you can see the residents are awarded for their participation with the lollipop. <laughs> so this project utilized that curriculum over the course of a year to achieve our improvement aims. 
And our quality improvement team consisted of uh, the Team 4 QI resident, who, as I mentioned, rotates on a monthly basis, um, the QI faculty, a health psychologist, a data analyst, and a hospital volunteer with a therapy dog. So over the course of a year, we conducted 16 total PDSA cycles, uh, which covered various themes. The first of these was patient education. So we created a flyer that advertised the appointments, which was included in our admission packets. Um, we also worked to identify our patients, who were tobacco users, um, through the creation of a tobacco user list, which mainly pulled from the nursing admission assessment. That tobacco user list was eventually distributed to the medical teams and also was used by an LNA for recruitment of patients. We also conducted staff education uh, through a couple of different methods. One was through the fostering of interward and interteam competition through publicizing the um, attendance numbers uh, to the appointment. We also conducted direct teaching of the medical teams about the importance of tobacco cessation. Finally, we modified our electronic medical record to create an order set for tobacco cessation, which included uh, nicotine replacement therapy, an educational packet, and an order to attend the SMA. Uh, so how do we do? So this graph has a lot going on, so I'll kind of walk you through it uh, step by step. So uh, if I get the pointer. So this orange line here uh, tracks nicotine replacement therapy within one month of discharge. Uh, the upper and lower dotted lines uh, are the upper and lower uh, control limits. And you can see here is where we initiated the SMA. And in the baseline period, which included about 106 patients um, before the intervention, about 23% of patients uh, got nicotine replacement therapy within one month of discharge. Um, after, the, uh, after about four months of the project, this increased to 41%. I've also highlighted here a number of uh, the PDSA cycles. Um, so the one refers to systematic teaching of the medical teams. Uh, the two uh, to development and distribution of that tobacco user report. There were a number of cycles relating to that, but the two is where that was kind of completed. Um, I've highlighted here where our therapy dog Lizzie retired, and you can see that there was a drop off in attendance and um, attendance and in NRT rates after that. Um, three is. Uh, using that tobacco user report in multidisciplinary rounds, so teams had to fill out which of their patients were attending the appointment and then turn it in during the multidisciplinary rounds. Um, and four is the creation of that tobacco cessation order set. Um, so you can see that you know, over t after the intervention, we kind of had a slow improvement, interrupted somewhat by the retirement of our therapy dog, uh, but then we kind of got back to that baseline and sustained it thereafter. So that was a lot, so I'll kind of return to the, the aims I talked about earlier. So as a reminder, we set goals for each of these things somewhat arbitrarily at 50%. Um, and so our first goal was uh, to increase NRT prescription or outpatient counseling on discharge at 50%. In that respect, we fell a little short. So um, as uh, you saw in the graph previously, we went from 23% to 41% um, for NRT within one month of discharge. Uh, in terms of the EPRP data, which assesses this measure, we went from 16.6% to 30% of our patients getting either NRT or outpatient counseling on discharge. Um, the second aim was to increase tobacco cessation counseling during hospitalization. Uh, so on this score, we did quite well. Um, we used EPRP data to assess this and saw that we went from 28.5% to 83.3%. Um, so if you remember from earlier, the Joint Commission average on that measure is about 60%. So we're now outperforming the Joint Commission average. Um, in terms of our SMA attendance, we went from 17% at the beginning of our project to 44% in the last eight weeks. So over the course of our year-long improvement project, uh, we achieved one of our aims and made substantial progress on two others. I think the SMA was probably one of the primary drivers of this, uh, but I think there were probably a lot of other causes. We did a lot of education to providers and nursing staff um, about the SMA and about the importance of tobacco cessation, and I think that probably helped uh, increase our nicotine replacement therapy prescription rates. Um, we did use NRT prescription within one month of discharge as kind of a proxy measure for quit or reduce attempts, and it may not be a perfect measure of that. Um, especially here at DH, I think oftentimes when we prescribe people nicotine replacement therapy, it goes to their pharmacy and then they may never fill it. Um, however, at the VA, when patients are admitted, they actually leave the hospital with a, a brown paper bag with their, with their discharge prescriptions in it. Um, so at least that step of having to go to the pharmacy and get the nicotine replacement therapy goes away. And so it may be a more valid measure of actual quit or reduce attempts in our population. Um, 
whether the SMA can be applied to a general population, I think, is uh, an interesting question. Um, I think the SMA has shown special benefits in the veteran population, uh, but in the general population, SMAs have been used for other chronic, med uh, chronic medical conditions in the outpatient setting. Um, I think one thing that m makes this uh, difficult to implement in a large academic center like Dartmouth-Hitchcock is the acuity of our inpatients compared to the, those of the VA. So the VA, many of our patients can get up out of their beds or, be, or go in a wheelchair to their appointments, whereas I think many of our inpatients at DH are either restricted to their beds or so ill that they can't leave their rooms. And that might limit the ability to implement this at large academic centers like DH. So in the future, future, I think it would be helpful to investigate the actual cessation rates, even through, either through chart review or through phone calls to patients. Um, and it, I think it would also be helpful to examine readmission rates. Um, since we know that, actual, that cessation actually reduces readmission rates, um, if we showed a decrease in readmission, it would both decrease morbidity and mortality of our patients, and it would show that the program was cost-effective if you just prevented a few admissions. Finally, I think given the areas in which we failed to meet our aims, mostly having to do with discharge, I think improved discharge follow-up could be helpful. Since, as I mentioned earlier, the most successful programs have sustained uh, discharge follow-up, even a phone call or a follow-up meeting with the tobacco cessation counselor as an outpatient uh, could help us increase the number of patients who actually quit smoking. Uh, so in summary, we implemented a novel inpatient shared medical appointment for tobacco cessation at the White River Junction VA Medical Center. Over the course of a year-long resident-driven improvement project, we increased the proportion of tobacco users who received tobacco station counseling and the proportion who made an attempt to quit or reduce tobacco use. Um, I'd like to acknowledge the contribution of many of the Team 4 residents, um, as well as the whole QI team. Uh, these are my references, and I can take any questions. In the back. Yeah, they are. Actually, uh, I think one of the issues is that um, it, during previous uh, generations, they actually, you know, handed out cigarettes during, uh, as part of like their, uh, like, care packages. So <laughs> that's probably part of the reason it's, uh, there's increased prevalence in that population. How do you feel about um, supplementing nicotine patches with uh, Gum or right, so actually, uh, when I refer to nicotine replacement therapy, I know it's a, a little bit of confusing terminology. It actually refers to everything, so gums, patches. I think we use lozenges quite extensively, actually, um, in addition to the patches. Excellent talk. Um, can you tell me about continuity on the resident side? Am I correct that this is an initiative that was passed along month by month from resident to resident to resident. So how do you get buy-in for your peers and colleagues for one year and then hand it off to the next class and then the next class? How does that go? Right. So I think uh, through the, the time of the project, we have our, you know, the QI team that is uh, always there, and they work with the residents who are rotating through to come up with new ideas uh, for PDSA cycles and uh, help them implement those ideas. Um, at this point in the project, it's kind of institutionalized. There's actually no longer residents who are actively working on the project. Uh, it's, we have our hospital volunteer who's actually here today and um, an LNA who worked to invite people to the appointments. And so other than residents knowing about the appointment and invite and telling their patients about it, there actually isn't any more uh, kind of passing along that needs to be done. Dr. Block. So the, although sometimes we frown on anecdotal medicine, I, it, it might be powerful if you had an anecdote of someone who had failed to quit before, but this really helped them. Did, did you have that experience? or? Uh, I mean, I think we have the experience of a lot of people who have smoked for a long time who, you know, went to the meeting. Actually, I'm on VA right now, and uh, I think uh, one of the patients early in the week had gone to the appointment and told us that he really loved it, and he was now wanting to quit, and he, we prescribed him, you know, lozenges. So I think there's lots of stories like that. Harley. I have two questions. 
One, uh, did you end up actually measuring uh, whether people actually quit smoking or not? And two, is the VA getting another therapy done? <laughs> so, uh, so I'll answer the second question first, since it's probably more important. Yes, we are. Uh, <laughs> um, and I, th I think, uh, so we're actually working on that now. It, I think it takes a lot of resources to, you know, so chart review, I think there are two ways you can do it. You can do it through chart review or actually contacting patients. And so doing it through chart review is probably not terribly accurate because it relies on people documenting, you know, in their follow-up appointment that, oh, they quit smoking and they don't always do that. Um, so I think the way to do it would be to actually contact patients, to, um, but that is pretty resource intensive. So. Did family members attend the group? No, so it's just, just patients. <coughs> Great. Cool. All right, thank you. All right, our second speaker today is Dr. Jason Wang. Uh, Jason grew up in the St. Louis, Missouri area in Avon, Connecticut, received his Bachelor of Science in Biomedical Engineering from UConn and his medical degree from uh, UConn also. He lives in Lebanon with his wife, and after graduation, is going to be a hospitalist at Concord Hospital. Take it away. Thanks, Harley. Um, so my, uh, thanks for coming, everybody. Um, I decided to focus a research project on um, determining sources of bothersome noise for inpatients. Um, and I'll, I'll explain my justification why um, in just a moment. Um, actually, Florence Nightingale, uh, today is her, it's Florence Nightingale's birthday, for those who don't know. Um, she's like 200 years old. Um, and she said that unnecessary noise is the most cruel abuse of care which can be inflicted on either the sick or the well. So, you know, can't argue with that. I mean, they didn't have Clabsy or C. diff back then, um, but it's her birthday. Happy birthday, Florence. These are my learning objectives. Um, we'd like to, I'd like for you to understand the uh, impact of excessive noise on hospitalized patients. Um, I'd like, you know, I, uh, one of my object objectives is to have you understand the main sources of bothersome and sleep-disrupting noise for our inpatients. Well, I'm having a slight technical issue. Yeah, for some reason it's not showing my presenter view. It's not really showing anything. Oh, here we go. Found it. Yeah, All right. You make sure you're clicked on. Yeah, I think I'm good. Okay. Um, and also, I wanted to uh, discuss strategies for improving noise levels in our inpatient wards. Um, on the right, you'll see a chart of typical decibel levels um, for kind of normal day experiences. Um, it's a little small, but you can see classroom chatter is about 70 decibels. Um, a, a conversation at a normal distance about 60 decibels. A soft whisper is about 40 decibels. Um, decibels are uh, actually a logarithmic uh, unit, and they're, they're measured relative to the threshold, the minimal threshold of human hearing. And we a-weight this, which means that we actually apply a frequency uh, filter to it um, to, to kind of replicate the human frequency response. So we call these decibels, actually they're uh, abbreviated DBA for A-weighting. Um, and research has shown that roughly about a 10 decibel increase is a, uh, a doubling of the perceived loudness which, of course, does vary between people. And there are some studies out there that tell us um, what, how loud typical hospital noises are. Um, pagers are about 84 decibels. Uh, te telephones are about 70 to 80. Pulse ox alarms are about 60 to 80. And infusion pumps are about 65 to 84. Um, and actually, I, I, had, I had access to like a $7,000 know, sound pressure level device, and I measured my own pager at about a, a foot from my head, or about a foot from the uh, measuring device, and it was 80 decibels. So these things are loud. Um, so the WHO and the EPA both actually uh, recommend limits for how loud a hospital should be, and they say that it shouldn't be ex uh, exceeding 35 to 45 during the daytime and 30 to 35 during the nighttime. And we do have research that shows that noise levels are increasing over time, which makes sense because we have more machinery, um, perhaps more acute patients, that kind of thing. And we don't have great studies. I mean, the studies are pretty poor quality, but we do have a fair amount of evidence that links noise exposure to myocardial infarction risk, um, worsened wound healing, uh, delirium, and worse uh, sleep, which I think is intuitive, um, as well as increased stress hormone levels. So we know it's potentially harmful in that respect, but also it's, uh, it affects our patient satisfaction scores, which I'll talk about in a minute, and it annoys everyone, which I don't think we need data to show. <laughs> 
Um, this is interesting. So um, this is a study by Bush, Vishniak, and colleagues. Uh, they actually reviewed uh, studies of hospital noise over time. Can you hear me? This is okay. And they found that um, we're looking at roughly, if you can see about in the modern era, about 75, about 55 to 75 decibels during the daytime. And at nighttime, about 40 to 60 decibels. So we are well, yeah, I was kind of worried about. We're going to wonder. Breaking this. Let's make some more noise. <laughs> this is kind of intimidating, Harley, because. Yeah, you'll be good. It always gets messed up. There you go. Thanks. Uh-huh. So. I don't think it's on. That way the people at the VA can hear you. Can you guys hear me? <coughs> Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there was one study that actually tried, they, they tried to achieve the WHO or EPA gu uh, uh, guidelines, and they had to turn everything off. Like, they basically had to turn every single bit of equipment in the room off. So we are not achieving this aim. There's one uh, interesting meta-analysis that looked at uh, nine studies for the incidence of delirium after, uh, with an intervention of giving patients earplugs, and they saw a relative risk of about 0.59. And, um, you know, that kind of intuitively makes sense, I think. If people are getting better sleep, they're, they have earplugs in, um, they potentially would be less delirious. So satis patient satisfaction, I think this is a big piece. So why do we care about our hospital being loud? Well, when patients are discharged, a large number of them receive um, press gainy surveys, or also known as HCAPS surveys. Um, and... The question that's relevant is, during this hospital stay, how often was the area around your room quiet at night? And they have, if they, they don't say always, then we get dinged on this one. So it's kind of like a corporate survey, like you either like, you have to be perfect or you fail. <laughs> and um, these are our results over time, and they're not good. Um, they're roughly averaging about 40%, but in our last survey, we only hit 32%, so not great. And the national average is 63%. So, you know, it's not that all hospitals are loud and we just have to deal with it and, you know, it's fact of life and it's not a hotel and suck it up. I think we need to do better. <laughs> and this is publicly available so people can go and look and um, they can see that we are at 40%. Our New Hampshire average is 57% and our national average is 63%. And actually, I, I even have some, some of our peers, if you're curious. Uh, Concord Hospital is scoring 57%. Um, Elliot is scoring 54%. Catholic is 45%. Southern New Hampshire is 60%. St. Joseph is 55%. Um, and our VA is 39%. So that could be another story there. But I think we're, we're well below average. And I was told we're about in the two percentile. So, you know, we could probably improve that. So the purpose of my study is just, you know, we know we're too loud, but we don't have data showing what is causing our loudness, like what's disturbing our patients. And so I want to identify sources of bothersome noise for hospitalized patients, including which noises specifically disturb their sleep. And I just did this through a simple survey. Uh, it was voluntary. Um, I gave it to patients who were hospitalized on the medical wards, so one, two, three, as well as cardiology, um, four east, and one west, our hemonc uh, unit. Um, I, I did include the step-down units in this. Um, I gave out 100 surveys, and I got back 80 of them. This is what the survey looked like. I tried to keep it as simple as possible, so their only choices were basically not at all, a little, or a lot, <coughs> or like I don't have one. Um, so, for example, during your hospital stay, have you been bothered by noise from your IV pump shown below? Have you been bothered by noise from your pulse oximeter shown below? Have you been bothered by noise from other people talking outside the room? Have you been bothered by nonverbal noise outside the room, such as alarms, phones, or mechanical noises? Have you been bothered by noise from your roommate? Has any noise disturbed your sleep? And if so, which noises woke you up? And I had them free write it. So it's just a single page, pretty quick survey. And these are my results. Um, so for those who reported they had an IV pump, um, how bothersome was noise from the pump? 44% um, said not at all. 41% said a little, and 15% said a lot. I'm going to go through these pretty quickly because I'll have a synthesis slide at the end. For those who reported they had a pulse ox, how bothersome was noise from that pulse oximeter? 64% said not at all, so that wasn't nearly as bothersome as the IV pump. 27% said a little, 9% said a lot. Um, how bothersome was noise from people talking outside the room? 53% said not at all, 34% said a little, 13% said a lot. How bothersome was nonverbal noise outside the room? 
56% said not at all, 32% said a little, 12% said a lot. I was surprised by this one because um, you know, I always assume that roommates are probably incredibly annoying and bothersome, but actually most of the patients, and this wasn't a verbal survey, they, were, they wrote this down, so they, didn't have, they weren't you know, under pressure, um, but 72% um, actually said they weren't bothered by their roommate at all. 10% said a little and 18% said a lot. And this is kind of the synthesis of, these, of those pie charts that I just showed you. Um, and so you can see the pump is, is probably causing the most disturbance overall. Um, people talking loudly outside is kind of the second worst. Um, just nonverbal noises outside, you know, alarms or clanking or squeaky wheels or med carts or tube stations or what, what have you. You know, that was probably the third worst. And it's maybe a toss-up between roommates and pulse ox. Neither was terribly um, intrusive, but, but I think the top three were the pump, people too loud, things too loud outside. So then I asked, um, if it's not your first day, has your sleep been disturbed by any noise? Um, and what we heard was that 46% said it wasn't disturbed at all, 36% said a little, and 17% said a lot. So in more than half of our patients are having their sleep disturbed by, um, by noise. And then finally, and this is kind of the free text response, so I had them write in um, what things they felt were disturbing their sleep. And I just kind of tallied up their uh, people's responses. And again, we see the top three worst is people talking too loud, nonverbal noise outside, and the IV pump. So again, those top three are, are sort of, when you ask the question a different way, are still coming out as sort of the most annoying and bothersome and, and keeping people up at night. Here's a couple of comments that I found. Um, beeping from others' IV pumps, it echoes. IV pump. Okay. IV pump. Okay. <laughs> alarms outside the room and alarms on the IV pump going unanswered. IV pumps and vital signs, which I didn't really, it's not a noise, but we could address that too. This was an interesting one. Uh, loud voices and laughter sounded as though a party was in full swing. And this was not. This was not the only patient who told me that it sounded like there was a cocktail party or like some sort of party going on outside. Um, you know, and I, I think we just have to be cognizant of the fact that even though you know, we're like on the night shift perhaps and we're hanging out with our coworkers, but like we're here to take care of the patients and they are being disturbed by raucous laughter outside at the, uh, you know, at the pods. Um, it is troubling to the very sick to hear noises in disregard of the suffering and pain of the patients. Sleep when ill is a premium and never should be interrupted by rude people. So that was kind of a really interesting comment. And, and very true. I think when you're sick, you don't want, you know, you don't want to be disturbed. This was great. All of the above, it's like being at the zoo. <laughs> so what can we do? I hope I've convinced you that we're too loud and we're louder than our peers and our patients dislike it. Um, what can we do about it? Well. So I spoke a lot with um, nursing and with clinical engineering to try to figure out what sort of solutions are out there. For the pumps, there's not really a good current, there's no technological solution to this, okay? Um, you know, there was a plan at some point to change vendors from our Sigma pumps to the Alaris pump. And I am told by the nursing managers that those actually had, had stiffer, um, more occlusion-resistant tubing. So that would kind of help reduce some of these, like, you know, the arms getting bent or air in the line, those kinds of errors. Um, in the future, there may be a technological solution in terms of middleware, and clinical engineering is actively looking at this, where basically what that would do is it would take streams of alarms from all sorts of, um, all sorts of our products and um, kind of uh, sort of collate those, and then it would kind of prioritize alarms in real time, and it could kind of distribute those alarms to the appropriate staff member. But there's a lot of problems with that. First off, it's probably going to cost a million or a zillion dollars, really, um, second, right now our pumps don't stream this data in real time. They stream, they, they sort of dump their data, and it's okay for data collection, but it's not. It doesn't work for real time alarming. And also, um, there are regulatory issues here because you you actually do need to have an alarm next to the patient's head for various reasons. So I think we really need to focus on educational interventions. Um, that's where that that's cheap, and I think that would be the most effective. You know. I think I was on one of the pods, and it was actually it was interesting because I was giving out the surveys, and um, and there was a nurse who was hooking up a pump, and she was sort of fiddling with it, and there was no medication on the line yet, and the entire time she was doing it, the pump was going beep, beep, 
the entire, for probably five or ten minutes, and she was outside of about four patient rooms, and we're sort of dead to that. You know, we don't even notice it. And I probably wouldn't have noticed it unless, except the fact that I was giving out a survey about noise. And this was outside probably four patient rooms. And so things like that I think we can do better. You know, we may not have a you know, multi-million dollar technological solution, but I think just we can educate people. Hit, hit that silence button. You know, be cognizant of the fact that you're disturbing people if it's not necessary. You know, I think nobody's going to argue that if a patient's heparin drip is about to run out, like, we'd like to be notified. But, but the battery, I think, is another one. You know, we shouldn't be seeing patients' alarms going off because the battery's low, because it has a plug on the end. So I think it's cheap stuff like that. Um, I think loud voices. This is a big one. And essentially, people need to be quieter. Um, we need to improve awareness about this. I think that's a big issue. We need to kind of convince our staff, meaning you guys, as well as nursing staff, um, that we're, we're being too loud and we're disturbing patients. And it's not inevitable, and we can do better. Um, I'll talk about the Yakker Tracker, which was an interesting experience. Um, also, masking devices. Um, so that's an interesting thing. It actually kind of makes things louder, but it, it gen there are devices that generate white noise that can be placed in patient rooms, and they, do, they are shown to improve the perception of loudness. But basically, people need to be quieter. Same with nonverbal noises. I think a lot of this is cultural. We need to prioritize it when we design uh, rooms and when we kind of move things around. If there's a squeaky wheel, there is actually a, somebody actually studied this, and they found that if you grease a squeaky wheel, it could reduce the loudness by up to 30 decibels. So we could change something from piercingly loud to you know barely audible or inaudible. It's it's silly, and I I, I don't know if there's anybody from Hemonc here, but I, when I was giving out the survey in the HISQ, there's a very loud refrigerator that sits in the HISQ, and uh, basically the noise echoes throughout the pod. And you know I think it's it's stuff like that that we need to work on, responding quickly to alarms, um, moving loud objects away from patient rooms. We could consider muffling the tube stations. We heard a lot of complaints about the tube stations. There are devices that can, that, um, that can muffle the, those stations and other sound deadening strategies. And things can get pretty fancy. You know, there are acoustic consultants that will go and actually you can hire them and then they will you know, figure out what's too loud in your hospital. There are acoustic ceiling tiles. There are acoustic carpets and, and floor tiles. You know, there are acoustic curtains. Um, those would be things that would be more expensive but are out there. And I should say that, you know, um, our reimbursement is tied to our HCAPS surveys, so our press gaming surveys. So this stuff is important not only to improve our patient experience because it's the right thing to do, but because um, there's money on the line as well. So Yakker trackers. Uh, really brief, I will talk about our experience with these. Um, so this is, you can buy them on Amazon. They have a two-and-a-half-star average review. Um, <laughs> I walked around trying to find them, and I actually had a very hard time finding any that were out. Um, here's one that was actually physically out, but it was off. <laughs> here's one that was placed in a corner, and uh, there was a lot of dust on it. Here's one that's behind a computer, and it's off. And the complaints I heard about the Yakker Tracker were, you know, just there were so many. But I think one of the issues was they were kind of like, like juvenile. Like, they have these little things, and you know, green light. Happy smiling kids mm -hmm. and red light, you know, like kids telling you to be quiet, and all the staff hated this. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing is that they actually make an alarm when it gets too loud. <laughs> so, for example, um, like I heard one complaint that it was at a tube station, and so every time a tube would come down, it'd go kusunk, and two seconds later you hear whir, whir, because the, the Yakker track would also set off an alarm. So I think that was a, you know, maybe that one was not, didn't work. Um, the other thing in terms of noise reduction 1.0, things we've already rolled out is these quiet packs. We're actually pretty well received. Um, basically, uh, all or most of all patients who get hospitalized receive a quiet pack. And it contains uh, an eye mask and uh, earplugs. A Sudoku and a Voices Down Please, which I've never seen used. But I'm told by the, uh, the nurses I talked to that actually a fair number of patients are using the earplugs, and so that's great. So here are my conclusions. Um, so, so the wards are too loud, and it's not inevitable, and there are tangible benefits to improving our performance here. Our primary sources of noise that I found are IV infusion pumps, verbal noise outside the room, and nonverbal noise outside the room on our medical floors, um, not the ICU or anywhere else. Um, and actually, there is, there is research out there that um, 
basically corroborates this. Um, our results aren't unique. Essentially, most of the research says that it's alarms, people too loud, and things too loud. And uh, actually, surprisingly, pulse oximeters and roommates were less frequently cited, cited as sources of bothersome noise in my study. And I, hopefully, it's now apparent to you all that our current noise abatement strategies are inadequate. Um, so here are my references. And I'd like to thank all these people, um, Carol um, Majewski from uh, Patient Experience Department, um, all of our nursing managers, um, Michael Brilling from Clinical Engineering, and uh, Harley for his advice and support. And I'll take some questions. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I didn't go around measuring noise, but I think that would be if you know we're going to proceed with improving our noise situation, we really should be measuring with a de you know, sound pressure level meter and figuring out where is the loudest. But um, I do, I, I agree that probably our pod design makes it easier for nurses to get to people, um, but it also makes it louder because you know I, I think many of us have had the experience of. Um, you know, for example, there's like a telemetry pager that sits in the pod, and when it goes off, it's, it's incredibly loud. And um, all the patients hear it because we don't have a, a linear, you know, hallway. Um, so, yeah, but we, can't, we can't change our layout, but, but that's true. Yes, so Dr. Roby. The heterogeneity in responses is kind of interesting. I'm trying to think of those physical characteristics that might distinguish the ones that are more bothering than others. And there, 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 there are two things that, that I kind of came up with. One is that people may be habituated to different levels of noise at home. I mean, obviously, if you have a fan in the window and a snoring spouse and this kind of stuff may be very different than if you're off the grid and you just have a little tinkling brook in the background. Mm -hmm. but, but, but probably even more forefront might be, what about levels of hearing acuity? You know, are the things that are more problematic to more people, mm -hmm. are they in, in ranges where the hearing impaired or also infected, you know, because in theory, someone who has hearing impairment is they have an, they have a built-in filter, if you will, for certain noise ranges. True. And I was going to ask whether whether you you stratify or or whether you screen. You know, are, are all your patients they have equal hearing? I, I mean, the reason why I asked it specific this way is to ask, were you bothered by it? Because, you know, they're the ones that are going to fill out that survey, and if they're deaf and they say always, then great, you know. But um, I think to, re regardless of their ability to hear, I think we are still too loud. But, I, you know, I agree, people are going to perceive things differently. And um, I actually wonder, you know, the, mass, the, the maximum alarm is a little bit softer, and it's a little less uh, noxious than the IV pump alarm, and I wonder if there are differences because of that. Yes? So quiet has a different meaning if you live in a big city or if you live in the boonies, like many of our patients do. You know, so you wonder there's some reporting bias. Then the other thing that your main source of noise are ID pumps. They're probably the same all over the country. You know, so it's hard to say why it would be worse. Well, like I said, I think it's not a technological solution. It's it's really, I think, a cultural solution here. Um, and that's absolutely right. You know, why are our scores lower if we're using the same pumps as everyone else? I think it's how we're using that. Um, to answer your other question, um, you know, there are lots of rural states, and I think we're still well below everyone's average. So, you know, uh, I think we could do better. <laughs> I, I think maybe, yeah, people are, might be more used to a quiet environment, but at the end of the day, um, we're still well below the average of, you know, if, I think if you took Montana's scores, or, you know, I can look that up for you now, but we're probably still below them. Dr. Kiefer? So I also wonder if... Um, Patients are more likely to report being dissatisfied or, you know, be more likely to report a noise if it's a noise they thought wasn't related to their care. So maybe on the patient satisfaction surveys, if they've heard the noise from an IV pump in their room, they identify that as, that was important, so I, you know, I, that was taking care of me, I don't care about it. But if they heard a noise that sounded like a cocktail party yeah. outside the room, that's much more dissatisfying because it felt like a preventable noise that they weren't. Yeah. I don't know if there's any evidence in the literature about um, whether people differ, whether patients differentially identify the same volume of noise 
as bothersome or not bothersome? I don't. I, I haven't seen anything like that in the literature. Um, but I will say that you know, in my conversations with the nursing managers, um, one idea that came up is to educate people about these noises because one comment I heard from nurses is that well, sometimes the pumps go off for a long period of time because the, the doors close and they don't know which patient's alarm is going off. And you know, maybe a simple intervention would be you know telling patients or even having a poster and saying, you know, is your pump going off and it's, nobody's gotten to it, like ring. Or, you know, there could be some education behind that to tell patients what these noises are and what to do about them. Um, obviously, short of having them silence their own pump alarms or that kind of thing. But, but for example, you know, you could probably tell patients if your pump is going off for five minutes and nobody's come to you, just let the nurse know because we may not be aware. Uh, Jay. So in regards to uh, technological solutions to ID pumps, I think I would come across a similar technology in Massimo, where if the beeper goes off, the nurse's pager rings as opposed mm -hmm. to it making a lot of noise in the room. Yeah. I wonder if engineering can come up with something similar for the pumps. I agree, a part of the pump alarm is for the patient feedback to sort of straighten their arm, but half the alarms may be from bags being empty or some other problem. Yeah. To the so yeah. If you go directly to the nurse's pager, then might avoid that kind of the only problem with that is that if you send it to a single person and that may have restrictions whereas you know an alarm is there for a purpose to alarm people in the immediate area that something's going on and so then you would be posed with the dilemma of sending it to all the pagers and you know anybody that has all these electronic notes that are popping up on our computers it, you know it's almost overwhelming the number of I mean the alarms probably bother us more than they do the patients. Patients, but you know it's um, yeah. It's the price of doing business. Well, um, so just answer to answer your question, um, we there are certain alarms that are that based on regulation we cannot silence. So even if we can roll out this middleware thing, which is probably years out in the future, and be able to actually stream in real time alarm data such that. You know, a nurse could be notified on like a smartphone that says, hey, room 115's battery is low. And that could be maybe suppressed. Maybe that alarm could be suppressed. But there are certain alarms that are not going to be suppressible. So I think, you know, the low-hanging fruit is we need to tell, you know, like, like the person hooking up the pole and the whole, the whole time the alarm's screaming. I think it's the low-hanging fruit that we can focus on now because we don't have that technology yet. Uh, I'll take, I, I think. Yeah. Um, from what I heard is no, and I also, I've also heard just this is all anecdotal. Is that the quiet hours hasn't helped that much? But I I, I don't want to speak for everyone because I I'm not sure. It has, certainly hasn't helped enough. Um, so from a nursing standpoint, I just want to comment on the pumps. It is a technological issue because you have four or five pumps on one pole. That's five plugs that you have to plug in. We don't have enough outlets for that. Mm -hmm. The Laris pumps, they have different um, channels that you can connect to one single plug. So that's something to think about. Also, I was wondering if you did any surveys like Board of Americas about their thoughts on the noise and how they feel that. I did not survey the nurses. I talked to a lot of the nurses, but I didn't survey them um, just because I wanted to keep my scope limited to the patient experience. But um, the, the Alaris pumps, I think, will reduce some of that. And that's a really good point. I didn't mention that, yeah, because we're, it's going to be one central uh, kind of brain and a couple of uh, pump modules on the side um, that could be helpful in terms of uh, keeping the alarms down. Um, my understanding is that the Alaris pumps were not rolled out because of financial issues. And, and so there is some technological... Um, you know, there's some ways we can improve the technology. Yeah. It's, it's interesting, since you bring up that point, it raises the interesting question of whether every ID pole actually had uh, an outlet extender sort of zip tied to it. So you plug in the extender and then you just plug all the plugs plug into that, maybe it would solve the problem. I don't know if that's an option. But anyway. Yeah. What's that? Yeah. So. Also, I think the pod setup does play a role because I know specifically on floor east that we don't have a central location we are charting. We have to use like the portable computers, and so we're right there outside them all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And I think rounding plays a, bit, plays a big role too, because then you've got teams of like, you know, you might have an attending, a resident, an intern, a med student, we're all, you know, speaking at the top of our lungs to be heard over each other. Um, there's actually even a name for that effect. Somebody got this named after them that when it's really loud, you speak louder. Um, so, um, you know, I think as doctors, we need to be aware of that and, and not 
be shouting at each other during rounds. Is that named after Trump? No. no. <laughs> I think it's ridiculous that he got this named after him, so I'm not even going to say his name. But Carol, I'm not sure that everybody knows who you are. Do you want to say... Oh, thank you for coming, Carol. Hi, or and a little bit about the project. Sorry um, to pick on you. Good morning. No, that's okay. Um, I, for those who don't know me, I'm Carol Matusky. I lead our work here at Impact uh, on patient experience. Um, and it was really great to work with Jason on this project. Uh, it was exciting to have somebody interested in it. Um, it is a challenge. And we've looked at all of the best practices. So while I too kind of looked at that Yakka tracker and said, oh, many institutions have been very successful in using that. Um, and it does have the ability to turn off the alarm, um, to use that as a visual cue for adults to see a visual cue that the noise level is rising. And so that's the intent. Um, there were other products that were more expensive, so we really went to the low cost to achieve the same goal. Um, with the intent of putting it in areas where at least people could see it and say, you know what, the noise level is rising, what's my role in this? So that was the intent, as well as helping uh, our patients and their families. So the intent of posters was to help people, again, be a visual cue that um, there are people that are in pain and suffering, and what's my role in it? Um, I certainly agree it's tough, and, and I'm a nurse. I remember I work night shifts, and you start talking, and somebody says something, and, and before you know it, your voices go up and all. The other opportunities that I think we may not be leveraging is thinking about how frequently we are waking patients during the night, because when we wake them, then they hear noises more. So are we really doing the best job that we can in terms of clustering care, looking at whether vital signs really need to be taken with the frequency that they're being done, or are they doing it because it's a pain in EDH to make the change um, in, the, in the frequency? Uh, what about lab draws or other things that we're doing, and where are the opportunities to um, minimize the interruptions, which may therefore allow them to sleep uh, longer and better um, by keeping the door closed and not having people going in and out. So I think there's so many different ways, but it is discouraging to see us um, as low as we are nationally. And I certainly agree. I think the floor configuration has made it a challenge. It's wonderful for, for proximity, but it's terrible for noise. Um, but it is something we can continue to work on. And the more people that are just aware, I mean, awareness that it's an issue is the first step. And I don't know why the Yakko Tracker experience at our hospital has been so bad, but I've heard all sorts of, and, and the thing is, it's very easy to change the threshold. It's very easy to turn the alarms uh, off or down, and, uh, and people just, you know, they just jack up the threshold. I saw a couple of those on the surgical floors, but I didn't survey, um, or they just unplug them. Um, the alarm thing, turning off the alarm when it turns red, I heard a couple people saying that they turn it off, but sometimes the tracker gets unplugged, and somehow it defaults back. Um, so then you get that fantastic alarm again. So I don't, for some reason, it just hasn't worked out here. Um, and then, of course, you know, vital signs, Q4 hours, and, you know, labs times 9999 days is, is a whole other issue that, in terms of our patient experience, that we can improve. Thank you, everyone. Great, thanks. So we have uh, just a couple... Uh, we are done. Uh, we are done. The company is really pleased. Feel free to come and uh, take a look at our resident. We'll see all the incredible work that our resident has done. Uh, but the thing I'd like to finish up with is announcing our chief president for our uh, next, not next year, but year afterwards. Um, u